Looking for a graduation gift to inform, inspire, and encourage? When you give a subscription to Christianity Today, you're giving redemptive, relevant news and thoughtful balanced dialogue about the church, current issues, and public theology. Visit orderct.com slash graduate gifts to get a discounted student subscription for the graduates in your life. Starting at only $2 per month, this gift will engage and grow their faith throughout the year. Click the link in the show notes or visit orderct.com slash graduate gifts to order now. There was a drought in the Middle East, all the way from Samaria to the Mediterranean coast. In Zarephath, near Tyre, a widow was almost out of food. So was Elijah. The Lord prompted Elijah to travel to Zarephath. There he met the widow, heard her story, and gave her a simple set of instructions. In 1 Kings chapter 17, it says, She went and did everything in accordance with the word of Elijah, and she and her household ate for many days. The bowl of flour was not used up, nor did the jar of oil become empty, in accordance with the word of the Lord which he spoke through Elijah. According to some, the pandemic season was a plague of biblical proportions. It's not surprising then that the testimony of some pastors sounds like the story of the widow. Some pastors talked about how God kept his promises and, quote, they never worried about money. Other pastors told a different, more tragic story. In surveys, focus groups, and interviews, pastors were asked about finances and attendance during the pandemic season. This included inquiries about sources of income, changes in giving, and ways of measuring attendance for online and in-person participants. Beyond all this, we asked pastoral leaders what was great and what was hard. Welcome to Coven and the Church. I'm your host, Aaron Hill, editor of Church Salary, a ministry of Christianity Today. Join us as we unpack the results of Church Salary and Arbor Research Group's landmark study on the impact of COVID-19 on the American church. Download your free copy and follow along with our discussion by visiting churchsalary.com slash COVID study. To discuss this theme, and specifically to try and answer why some faithful congregations didn't witness a miracle, I'm joined by three researchers from the Arbor Research Group, Dr. Eric Shea, Dr. John Swanson, and Reverend Ebony Davis. Dr. Eric Shea has a doctorate in computer science specializing in artificial intelligence, game theory, and data analytics. During COVID, Eric left his job as a research scientist at a major defense company to serve as an AmeriCorps VISTA. More recently, he and his wife desired to serve alongside each other full-time, and so in addition to his work with Arbor Research, Eric and his wife steward children as house parents at a private boarding school. Eric, welcome. Yep, thanks. And Ebony, this is your second appearance on the podcast, but I wanted to mention a few more of your credentials. Uh, So in addition to being one of the founding members of Arbor Research Group, Ebony is a qualitative research expert with speaking credentials at international conferences with Orange and even with the Yale Youth Ministry Institute. John and Ebony, it's an honor to have you both back on the podcast. Hi, thanks for having us. Thanks so much. Let's start by talking about giving in isolation, or as we talk about it in the report, the miracle of plates. So Eric, it's hard to capture a lot of this on a podcast. Uh, There's a lot of great charts in the chapter, and again, we encourage everybody to go check those out. Uh, You can download a copy at churchsalary.com slash COVID study, but As you were looking at the topic in our research, what general trends were happening during the pandemic that caused finances to change for churches? Well, first off, obviously for finances, the attendance and the lack of people coming in definitely had a big part. But with services going virtual, many pastors actually shared that both the utility and technology costs affected their expenses. A lot of pastors mentioned that they were able to have some savings and not have to pay as much utilities, even didn't have to be using the church buildings. So say, for example, they would have the janitor come in as a part-time basis rather than full-time. So there's different things where they were able to save money via the utilities. However, the technology costs also impact because a lot of churches were not prepared. So they would have to buy different equipment to be able to handle the video recording. So that actually increased their expenses. Another aspect or trend that we saw that impacted the finances are that the traditional ways of receiving funds were unavailable, such as passing around the offering plate. That's the primary source of income for these churches. However, 
during the COVID, they had to be creative. And so it's pretty neat to listen to the different pastors and hear their stories, such as setting up online giving, but also even having deacons visit different homes and receive gifts. That goes without saying that it's they're invited. It's not just trying to raise money or even having drop boxes at churches. So they were creative, but they had to rethink the traditional ways. And so that impacted finances. Another big trend that we saw is that almost half of the church reported that they received support from sources other than giving. And so of these churches, over 80% of them, or in other words, four out of every five of these churches received PPP grants from the federal government. Also, as a lot of us remember, the individual stimulus grants also played a role in helping congregants to get to the church, even help the pastors be able to survive. And those that were blessed, they donated their uh, stimulus check to the church. So the sources, especially for the government, really played an impact and did help keep some of these churches afloat and provided for them, especially in staffing as well. And so leading into that, the biggest expense of churches are staff compensation and benefits. And so this led to almost half of the churches increasing, actually, the staff compensation from 2020 to 2022. But as Aaron was sharing, that's only part of it where they increased the staff compensation. Approximately 15% of the churches actually decreased staff expenses during the same period. So as we see here, there's a lot of uh, volatility, a lot of movements and changes, and we wanted to capture both spectrums, both sides of what the different churches were experiencing. John, as Eric was saying, finances are not a static thing. So churches that had to cancel in-person services, like Eric said, were able to save money on their utilities. But we asked churches to specifically detail the changes that they made. What did we uncover from responses to that question? One of the things that we uncovered is that there's not one thing that everybody did. Um, And in asking this question, we asked people to identify as many of these responses as applied to them. So when I'm running through this list, it's going to be not exclusive for a church, but a church could do many of these. So one of the first things that we saw were obvious adjustments that were not too painful. So for example, 41% reduced non-personnel administrative expenses. That's not a very big number in many churches because, as Eric said, the cost of compensation and benefits, but it is a place to make some cuts. Um, About 28% delayed a building program or deferred maintenance. Um, About 15% put campaigns or fundraisers on hold. Intriguingly, a smaller number of congregations, so a non-statistically significant, actually pursued campaigns during this. So it's that reminder that there's lots of uh, variation. In the painful um, but fewer churches than we might expect category, but still painful, Um, About 15% did furlough or lay off staff. About 12% reduced giving to denomination. About 10% reduced giving to missions or benevolence. So those are not as big as we might expect, but they're real things. The surprising adjustments financially were that about a third of churches identified that they supported other churches and nonprofits during this time. And about a third created a fund to support members. So while there are congregations that had to deal with massive loss. There are other congregations that saw this as an opportunity to help in their communities and took advantage of that opportunity. So, John, a lot of churches, as Eric was saying, reported receiving extra tithes because of the stimulus checks that came in. We heard a number of churches, and I've spoken to a number of executive pastors that said, hey, our people, they received these checks from the government, and they were faithful and, and tithe a portion of that to the church, and so that benefited our budget. But at the same time, a lot of cities and communities and industries were hard hit. Unemployment spiked. There was a lot of economic turmoil. So understanding that it's hard to make definitive statements, you kind of tackle this in the chapter and try to answer this question. So how can churches tell the difference between what we're calling a miracle and just good economic fortunes? As we thought about it, um, we suggest that a miracle is often in the timing and the telling. So we see something as a miracle because it was an ordinary thing that happened at the perfect time. So, for example, our mix of people meant that many of us kept our jobs and got stimulus checks and gave. So that's a miracle. Now, everybody was doing that, but they had a choice of what to do with that money, and they leaned into it in terms of providing that support. 
Um, we see something as a miracle because what happened was outside what we expected. So churches helping churches, that's a miracle. Or neighbors helping neighbors, that's a miracle. Um, we understand something as a miracle when we shift our focus from long or short-term to long-term or from what's happening to me to what's happening to us. So when a congregation says we lost wedding rentals and we lost outside rentals, but it let us focus on what mattered. And as we leaned into that, we saw discipleship happening. We saw whatever. So as I was thinking about this, I realized that miracle often in Scripture is not a massive thing. It's an intimate thing. And so Jesus often is doing miracles, but apart from feeding massive groups of people, which happened twice, most of them are side conversations with somebody who's blind and now is able to see. And so I think that rather than aggregating miracle, if we say, oh, in my experience, in my walk, in our congregation, the timing of this was miraculous, rather than it creating an expectation of, how come that didn't happen for me? Because we have to remember in this process is that faithful people and faithful congregations lost leases um, and had to cut payroll and didn't see miracles in the way we often think about it. And yet, God is continuing to work in their lives as well. Yeah. So, Ebony, I actually wanted to ask you about that question. You know, that was one of the challenges that we encountered with this study is there were plenty of churches that lost their leases. Yeah. You know, they lost access to their building. They had plans or, or maybe they were disrupted in their building campaign or something like that. And it's not like these churches were leading a life of sin or something. You know, this wasn't a, right. a, a punishment. You know, you would call them faithful congregations trying to do the Lord's will. So how do we make sense of those stories in light of these other churches that experience blessings? How do we make sense of these faithful churches that struggled to cover their financial costs during the pandemic? Yeah, I had uh, one pastor that wanted to make sure that I understood that this has been a K-shaped recovery and that not everybody was at the top of that K. And so, you know, I think there were a lot of factors that were in play and similar to what John said, not everything was the same for everybody. One of them that we've talked about before is adapting to survive. There were churches who adapted they moved with the pandemic. When restrictions came, they kind of rolled with the punches and, and they just adapted their ministries to everything that was going on. But then we know that some of those churches, for whatever reason, did not adapt to survive. And in some cases, it was because they dug their heels in. Um, and in other cases, it might have been just because they didn't have the know-how. They didn't have uh, the tools and the resources to be able to change. But those who didn't, for whatever reason, we're more likely to struggle. So we know that that was in play. Another huge one was churches that had a lack of unity. And man, COVID revealed some of the underbelly of what was going on in churches, the things that needed something traumatic to sort of bring it all to the surface. And I think the pandemic did that. So those churches saw loss in the plate and the pews. If, if they were fighting over masking and COVID guidelines, and if things were politicized, oftentimes that resulted in an exodus. And so they saw some loss there. John kind of alluded to this as well. There were just some very real issues that were going on in this whole thing. So many of these uh, churches are connected to businesses one way or another. They might be leasing space from a business. They might actually have a business themselves, like a, a daycare or something like that. And so, for example, if you're renting a school, when other churches started going back in, you couldn't go back in because a lot of times the schools were holding these leases out a little bit longer to make sure that the kids were safe. There was one church that we had that had sort of this, I would say, almost like a trifecta of issues. So they had some of this underlying lack of unity, uh, an underlying sort of racial tension. They lived in an, an expensive city. And so a lot of people simply moved away. Right. We know that uh, that was happening a lot. So a lot of people moved away. And then on top of that, they had this over-reliance on programs. They had great programs. They had over 200 kids. But what happens when that's all taken away? And so I think there were just a lot of things in play, and it was different for different churches. But we do need to be mindful that not everybody was at the top of that K. The other thing that is true is churches are always having financial incidents, are always having problems. Yeah. And so... 
broken pipes happen in churches all the time. But when broken pipes happen in a church where attendance is down and it's hard to get repairs because of pandemic kinds of things. And so in addition to being a revealer, there are ways in which um, the pandemic was a multiplier um, or um, people were already at the edge and any other thing non-related to COVID then took them over that edge. And so I think that that it points out some of the fragility that always exists financially and attendance-wise in congregations, far more than we imagine. Hi, my name is Karen Bell Palo. I am an executive pastor at Harbor Christian Center in Gig Harbor, Washington, and I'm really glad to be with you today. Karen. We've been talking in this episode about the common experience of changes in giving and attendance during the pandemic, and we've labeled it the miracle of plates and pews. So pretty early in the pandemic, as figures and survey data started to get published at church salary, we noticed a trend. Uh, most of the studies on finances were grouping churches into only two categories, even though they were offering churches three options. So Group one, which was much larger, included churches where both giving had either stayed the same or was increasing. Organizations were calling this the same or higher group. Group two, which was much smaller, was composed of churches where their giving or finances had decreased. So when you uh, combine same or higher churches together in this way, it was giving the impression that something like 66% of churches or more we're doing fine financially. When in reality, early on in the pandemic, churches were split into three mostly even groups with about 33% increasing, 33% staying the same, and, and 33% decreasing. So you were one of those church leaders who explicitly called out this narrative in our study. You literally pointed this out and said, hey, that, that doesn't capture our experience. Talk to me a little bit about how COVID impacted giving at your church uh, and how you felt like this prevailing same or higher narrative wasn't really capturing your situation. Yeah, absolutely. I think what I have found over the course of time, whether it is through church salary, you know, responses to surveys, our connection with ECFA, or a variety of organizations, what I often found myself doing is saying, man, we must be the outlier." Because our data and our experience did not line up with what I was seeing, which seemed to be overly positive. So I appreciate you asking the question just to give you a sense of who we are and, and maybe why our experience was a little bit different than most. We have always met uh, in a rented facility. We've met in schools for the course of our 30 years that has been a hallmark of who we are because we want our outreach to be greater than the facility and the facade that we meet in. And so we were holding hands with a government institution in education and trying to be the best uh, neighbor that we could possibly be, not just for people in our community, but with our district. And of course, in the state of Washington, we took a stance that was certainly different and significant. And as a result, our shutdown extended for quite a bit longer than most. And certainly that did impact. I mean, we have prided ourselves on being able to pivot and change given any circumstance. But for us, the shutdown, initially, there wasn't really any change. We begin to notice the impacts of the change later on, months into that process. We had kind of that emergent, like, oh, we're going to reach out to our neighbors. We formed a community coalition. We were mobilizing volunteers for organizations in our area, partnering with all kinds of food delivery and continuation of services. And giving followed that. And we didn't see much of an impact initially. But then over the course of time, we began to see that drop, particularly as we saw an increase in other church and faith communities locally who decided not to take the same tact in terms of the shutdown, who decided to take a more adversarial position towards state mandates. And so we began to see this enormous shift from what our perspective and our lens was being a good neighbor to 
we saw a shift in people and a shift in giving to organizations and faith communities that were taking a different tack and walking through the pandemic with a different view. And so for us early on, things were pretty stable. And then over the course of time, we began to see a shift. God is a genius storyteller. And the evidence of this is threaded throughout scripture. In Christianity Today's new show, Holy Curiosity, with me, Kat Armstrong, we explore storied connections threaded throughout Scripture from the Old Testament to the New. Our first miniseries, Connecting Dinah and the Woman at the Well, welcomes experts like Drs. Tim Mackey and Diane Landberg to give us insight and context into the physical location and meaning of these two stories. These stories will spark holy curiosity in your own faith, because once you see these connections, you can't unsee them. God wastes no person, place, or thing. Listen and subscribe to Holy Curiosity with Kat Armstrong on your favorite podcast platform. So in Washington State, how long were you locked down? Were you not permitted to meet in your normal facility? Yeah, great question. We started the lockdown in March of 2020, and we didn't return until schools were just beginning to open. So towards, I think, late 2021. Oh, wow. So almost a year and a half then. So were some of the people that attended your church, did they decide to go to some of these other churches that reopened sooner, that had their own facilities, that were taking a different stance towards the guidelines there in Washington state? Is that what happened? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we certainly saw that and understand that from our perspective, when we've always communicated this individually for all of our pastors, we perceive the door to be kind of a swinging door. It goes both ways, right? People are going to leave and people are going to come through that door towards our community over the course of time. We absolutely know that, but we definitely clearly saw a shift as we walked through some of those super challenging issues relating to the pandemic. Yeah. So what we discovered looking at a large scale, now obviously at individual church levels, there's a number of different compounding factors, but what our data showed us and what we were sort of surprised about was the severity of state level restrictions did not necessarily determine the fate of churches. The bigger impact was whether congregations were polarized about the reaction of pandemic health measures. So if people in the congregation disagreed about abiding by the health measures, whatever those happened to be in their state, then churches were more likely to see a negative outcome in terms of giving and attendance and those things. So was that something at your church where a significant subsection didn't approve of how you were responding to the pandemic, the the health measures and the way that you were staying more locked down? Yeah, great question. It's very interesting to think back through this because it kind of makes me a little sad, to be honest, Mm. you know, because we're in a different spot here today. But yes, I would say absolutely. We were more cautious with vaccination requirements for our childcare workers, and that caused certainly some shifting that we knew about. We didn't reopen, you know, kids programming for a period of time, trying to be respectful of what was happening locally in our school district. And it's interesting to hear your comment that that didn't seem to be a determinant, whether it was in, you know, a state that was more lax, it had to do with that in-community polarization. And we absolutely saw that. There were people that, for them, that was an issue that they were going to make a changeover and a significant change. I'm talking people that have been in our congregation for 10, 15 years and served in a variety of capacities. Wow. More than any other time, you know, certainly that I can remember, whether working in another nonprofit sector or not, issue became the piece as opposed to that commitment to community. So one of the other compounding factors that we don't mention specifically in the report, but did show up in a number of comments and focus groups was that churches where they rented a facility, Mm -hmm. specifically where they rented a school or some sort of government facility, those churches were more disproportionately impacted simply because they didn't have access to a building because a lot of churches where they weren't able to meet inside the building, some of them pivoted and actually had like church out in the parking lot, church in sort of a public facility or a public park or things like that. Was that something that your church tried to pursue while you didn't have access to your normal building? 
Yeah, great question. We do own a vacant property. We met on that property during the pandemic. Like I said, kind of our a hallmark of ours is um, being nimble. And so we have done parking lot. We have done vacant lot. We did online. We did video. If we had a new idea, we tried it <laughs> no matter what it was. <laughs> okay. And, and in some measure, you know, one way, shape or form that was uh, pretty successful, just trying to do something different over the course of time. So we did try. For sure. <laughs> so let me ask you one last question then. One of the themes, like I mentioned, we actually called it outside the walls, but like we just discussed, but one of the other themes was adapt to survive. And it sounds like your church did everything it could to adapt to survive. Were there any other adaptations or changes that you made to programming, your mission, your vision, the way that your church operated changes that were sort of either forced or inspired or precipitated by the pandemic? Yeah, absolutely. So I love that idea of inspired as opposed to forced, right? Because I can't control circumstances, but I control what we're going to do as far as the outcome is concerned. And so, yes, we leaned into the relationships with our local nonprofits in a very significant way. That, in my mind, was just a huge win as far as I was concerned during those pandemic months. And, you know, in terms of programming decisions, there were a variety of things that we were choosing to do and choosing not to do as we navigated those waters. And I will tell you that from a variety of perspectives, I mean, did we make financial cutbacks in terms of those practical type of decisions? Absolutely. We decided very early on also, you know, not to participate in kind of that first PPP loan offered by the mm. federal government. We felt like others needed to go ahead of us in that process. And so we decided not to do that. I didn't come to regret that decision, but I sometimes think of it as Egypt <laughs> because I think, oh, you know, wouldn't that have been great? But at the time, it was really the appropriate decision. I also look and see that since we're a spiritual community, we're a faith community, and the work that was done in terms of discernment by our council and our leadership in terms of what's appropriate was work that I don't know that we'll see that kind of intercession that we had at that time. But on the practical side, yes, we cut back significantly. We continue to work so that our financial health is not compromised. While we've seen significant changes both in attendance, but also significant changes in our core giving, who's giving, why they give, when they give. We're a small staff for the size of church that we are, and we lost two full-time people. Wow. It was significant. Um, we had quite a significant change occur with you know one of our staff leaving and starting another church locally, and that was certainly not by our choice. But at the end of the day, we have been able to weather the storms and then the aftermath. You know, it's, it's similar to any kind of tragic storm that hits. Like the moment it happened, we're all looking and just in shock about what the impact is. But it's really the year later, two years later, three years later, that people are still rebuilding. And that's the metaphor that I try to hang on to. What we were as a church you know, 2018, 2019 is not the church that we are today. And I don't consider it a bad thing. It's just different. And it keeps us on our toes to recognize that we you, you can't stay stagnant. You can't budget the same way you used to. You can't spend the same way that you used to, but we can adjust and we can learn and we can grow and do it a different way. Mm. You don't have to share too many details here, but I, I actually would like to ask you now that you brought it up. One of the other things that was a common experience, uh, one of the chapters in the report is, is titled Leadership in Crisis. Mm -hmm. And there is a section where we focus on churches that had a, a schism or a split or mm -hmm. a disagreement among staff over pandemic health measures. It sounds like something like that happened at your church. Can you share a little bit more about that? Yeah, I'll share a little more. You know, certainly that for us is still kind of a, a fresh issue and it's a painful process. I have family that works, you know, for other churches and other states. And man, I was always grateful that we had somehow not experienced the negative side of church in terms of power and greed and, and all of those kinds of things that tend to worm its way into the administration and leadership of church. And so 
while I would say that the specific church split was not driven 100% by pandemic measures, that I know for sure, but it certainly wasn't helped in the process because of, you know, some differences of opinion. And, and what's so interesting to me is that when you go through a period of time where our differences define us versus our community that defines us. When the differences define us, it cultivates this idea that, yeah, you know what? I could do this differently too. Mm. You know, that makes me sad sometimes. And, you know, it's certainly not in my DNA. I, I just want to dig in and, you know, be the church that goes where no other church is willing to go <laughs> and serve people and, and love on people. And, and so, you know, it is a painful process, but that, that was a significant hit. So for us, we say we had three major significant events that occurred for us. We had a change in location that was not of our doing. We were in one location that we rented. And, and prior to the pandemic, we had to change locations. And that was a very, very significant change. And uh, on the heels of that, the pandemic happened. And so then we're navigating those waters. And, and, and that was challenging in of itself. And then the third being basically what we have viewed as a split of our church. And so, you know, we still kind of look around over our shoulders and say, okay, is there something else there, Lord, <laughs> coming our way? Is there another tsunami wave coming our way? Yeah. But uh, as I said before, you know, church just is not the same as it used to be, but it's an opportunity to step into way the way things are now and how we can serve families. We have stepped into community in a different way with people than we ever have before. And I see that as a real positive step in terms of, you know, kind of our church DNA. Well, I want to thank you for sharing. I feel like your church, everything that we've been discussing in the report and everything we're going to discuss, I think it sounds like it it actually does line up with the experience that your church mm -hmm. had. The challenge is just that different events happen to different churches, but uh, it sounds like some of the causes, the variables that tended to be associated with decreased giving and attendance occurred at your church. So it makes sense to me that you guys went through such a difficult time, but it's good to hear that the Lord is growing you. So thank you for sitting down for an interview today. I really appreciate it. So glad to do that. As always, I, I love that things are going well in sectors of communities of faith, and we all need to hear those stories, but sometimes we need to hear the stories that are a little bit more like our own, where people are struggling and uh, doing their very best to understand what God has next for them. So we've just heard from an executive pastor who went through many of the issues that we've already identified and a few that we're about to discuss, but let's pivot and talk briefly about attendance. And we know that attendance fluctuated a lot during the pandemic based on lockdowns. And Eric, this is again one of those areas where charts and statistics kind of fail us on a podcast, but... Uh, walk us through some of the conclusions that we were able to draw about changes in attendance over the course of the pandemic from our research. So more than one in three churches actually experienced a decrease in attendance between 2020 to 2022. So if you're a church, if you look to the left, you look to the right, one of the churches there would have a decrease in attendance. And that really makes you think about Overall, if you try and average it, that's a thing when we look at data, look at the surveys. Overall, we say, oh, there's an increase, but still one in three experienced a decrease in attendance. And to look more in detail with our survey, we actually looked at differences in congregational ethnicity, in education, in gender, individual ethnicity of the respondent, the locale of whether their church is in like rural and urban, small city, and also the role and position of the church. Because we want to see the different trends hold across these different groupings instead of just lumping everyone all in together because different people have different stories. And so looking at that, some of the differences that we saw is that attendance actually increased at a higher level in small towns and sub in the suburbs compared to rural areas and large cities. Maybe because during COVID, especially people as they were working virtually might have moved maybe from the large cities to the suburbs or small towns. We're not exactly sure, but we're just trying to present Another big thing that we uncovered is that for a majority Black or African-American congregations, they're more than twice as likely to report a decrease in attendance compared to all other different types of ethnic congregations. So in fact, actually comparing against other ethnicities, 
that black congregations were the only ones that had over half their churches reporting a decrease in attendance. It was actually in two out of every three black and African-American churches reported a decrease in attendance. So as we're looking through the data, we want to tell and to look more detailed at these numbers instead of just saying a blanket statement. Oh, attendance has been pretty good, but no, for certain groups and certain people, it's been a struggle and being a challenge. And so, and through conducting a nationwide focus groups and case studies across churches, talking, listening to pastors, the six general factors that impacted attendance are really that the people left because of the health policies, or they also left their uh, disagreements over the race and racism. That was a big thing. Some people even uh, left for unknown reasons. They, they just disappear and ghost the pastors. Another impact is that the number of volunteers dropped. So I think also, especially hearing and talking to some pastors, that a lot of times the volunteers are older. And, it's, and these are the ones that are more susceptible to COVID. So they had a more worry about their health. And so it was tougher to handle that. And also pastoral care is very difficult because a lot of that is we're relational, be that proximity, that closeness, that sense of touch. And it was really challenging for that retention. And so the last one is that a lot of people moved online and some of them just have not returned back to church. Mm. Yeah, there's a lot of stories of pastors lamenting, when are people going to come back to the pews? I see them online, but they're not back in the pews. So John, that actually raises a question about online worship. Uh, And you actually addressed or mentioned some of these questions uh, head on in the chapter. So what questions did online worship raise? And and do we have any answers to these questions? Well, one of the things that we noted is that churches continue to struggle with how to describe what counts as actual church worship participation. Um, That (laughs) is not a new question. because of my years on church staff, that question of what counts has been a question for a long time. Is it in the room on Sunday morning? Is it in the building on Sunday morning? If somebody comes on Saturday night, does that count? Are we talking weekend attendance? So there have always been those kinds of questions. But now with online, there's also that sense of does that count as participating in worship? And in the, in the first episode um, of this series, we talk about presence being at the heart of pastoral ministry. So it's no wonder that there is that question that comes up when we're not able to be together. Are we actually worshiping together? A second thing that we noted, however, is how online viewing relates to accessibility. So by adding live streaming services and then giving tablets to people who don't have access, which a number of churches did, and even adding in things like conference call prayer meetings. Some churches were able to serve people who hadn't been able to see into the building for years. So there are a significant number of people who are um, homebound for a variety of illness reasons. There are people who are serving overseas and so can't see their home congregation. There are a number of reasons other than being slothful that people are not present in a church building. And what happened is by the live streaming, it gave an opportunity for those people to feel a part of a thing that they have felt separate from. And we also discovered that we still don't know how to count online. Significant percentage of people said, yep, we are really confident in the number. But what we don't know is whether people were actually watching, how many people were actually watching, whether people watched all the way to the end of the service, what else they were doing, whether they were napping during... I mean, so there are a variety of things that that create uncertainty about those numbers. And I think the the struggle is that there aren't any answers at this point um, other than the answer of saying, oh, this allows us to think about the role of accessibility. How can we be more open to people who are not able to be in our building for really good reasons. Um, How can we assess participation not only online, but among the people who are sitting in the building? And the question of, does being in the building, is that the only measure of participation in worship? Or is it something that happens, as we have said all along, Worship happens all through the week, not just on Sunday morning. So we're running into this thing with uh, challenges to the stuff that we have been saying all along. 
uh, it was interesting looking through the numbers to see the churches that were like, oh yeah, we have a strong confidence in our online assessment. And then you, you, you take that number of their budget and you divide it by the people and you're like, so uh, your people are giving on average $400 per person uh, when the national average is $2,700 per person. So I'm going to go on a limb and say they're probably overcounting the number of people online. And so it's like, you know, you had these churches, they're counting every time somebody scrolls past their feed on Facebook. And it's like, I don't know if that's the same thing, because we're not counting people that drive by the church and see the sign. So, uh, so yeah, there's definitely a lot of issues there in terms of uh, tracking attendance and counting it and, and making that reliable. Well, and yet that goes to the core belief of a number of congregations, which is exposure matters. We have to, we have to be constantly planting seeds. And this gives us an opportunity to plant seeds. And so that's, that's the thing that always is a struggle with quantifying faith. It's just that this is inviting us to reflect even more about what we're talking about when we're talking about those things. I just think it's helpful for churches, and this again, this is my own personal opinion, but I think it's helpful to distinguish between reach, how many people is your church reaching, and what is the actual size of the community that that is your congregation? Because back in the day, churches would have uh, radio stations, or you'd get broadcast on the local public access station or something. And that was always great to have a ministry like that. But nobody would say 2,000 or 3,000 people that watched us on the public broadcast station on Sunday morning are members of our church, right? So it's that distinction between reach and, and congregation that I think is, is helpful. Uh, we definitely want to have as wide a reach as we can, but do those people count as being part of the community that is our congregation? So one of the pressing questions that I was interested in answering with a study was whether the pandemic caused churches to close permanently. And I want to talk through these results with you guys in detail here. But first, I wanted to mention uh, what I felt like was one of the most interesting results. So we asked survey participants to estimate how many churches closed or opened in their community during the pandemic. And based on the feedback that we got, we estimated that overall 1.7 churches closed for every one that opened during the pandemic. So that's a, a negative 1.7 closure to opening rate. And on its own, it would have been hard to sort of hang our hat on that ratio. But uh, it turns out that LifeWay Research came up uh, with a similar result when they asked this question in 2014 and 2019. And so in 2019, they estimated that 1.5 churches were closing for every one that opened. And so if you place that next to our data point, you know, right before the pandemic, the rate was negative 1.5. And when we were able to measure it between 2021 and 2022, it was negative 1.7. So things got slightly worse, uh, but it's not like it fell off a cliff there. Not good news, but it, it shows us that the trend is getting a little bit worse. So what stood out to you guys about our findings on churches, uh, church closures versus openings or church planting during the pandemic? And uh, you guys feel free to jump in here. For the, yeah, the church closures and opening rate, delving a little more detailed into the data, and breaking up by congregational ethnicity, it actually is very interesting that for majority Asian churches, that re, it actually is the only one that reported a positive rate of openings versus closings. And in actuality, they were almost three times more likely to report that a church opened than uh, closed than all other ethnicities. So that was very interesting. And if you look more at the data that actually Hispanic and Native American and Alaska Natives were churches closed more in those different groups. And so looking at some of those, it's realizing that we give one number like 1.7 or negative 1.5 for the LifeWay, but we also wanted to look more details to tell the stories of these different communities that might not necessarily always get a voice because a lot of times, I think a majority of our respondents were white. So I wanted to be able to look at these other ethnicities and not try and just report on, this is in general what happened to these um, Caucasian churches, but also different multicultural, different ethnic churches as well. Yeah, and also of note in there is that the closure rate was higher in rural areas and small towns. That was an interesting discovery that, you know, it was negative in all the different locations. So rural areas, small towns, large cities, and suburbs, it was, it was negative across all of those, but it was worse in rural areas and small towns. And, and that was mainly a function of fewer churches are being planted in those areas. 
So churches are closing at roughly the same rate across different communities, but they're not being planted as much in rural areas and in small towns. And so we just see them shrinking in those areas. And that matches the trend that we've seen of uh, more focus being placed on urban church planting, which is, is a positive thing, but uh, it definitely seems like rural areas and small towns uh, took a harder hit. Part of what was a struggle for the small town churches, the more rural churches, is some of them had a pastor serving multiple congregations. Some of them had technology challenges either on being able to put it in place or being able to access it by the viewers. There are some congregations that stopped meeting in the building for a very long time. Some of them stopped meeting, and that rolled into closing. So I think that, again, there's that fragility of congregations. And we haven't mentioned it um, up to this point, but it's an important thing to mention. In the mix of all of this attendance is also the number of people dying. So there was a higher than normal death rate, particularly in certain communities, that affects attendance, that affects leadership, and in some cases that affected congregations continuing. And so I think that that's a piece, too, that, that can't be overlooked. Yeah, definitely. The higher death rate among different ethnicities uh, definitely contributed there. And then you can imagine a lot of the rural and small-town churches, they tend to be smaller. You lose uh, you know, a segment of the church uh, to COVID, and then you're closed for a significant period of time. And you know, it's hard to get a church of 20, 30, 40 people back up and running. Uh, when I was visiting some family in a rural area of Georgia, there were a number of signs I noticed on these churches that said, join us at another church. And so it appeared that they had closed that church, but they had sort of merged with another one in the area. So I suspect that some of that was going on as well. So I've been describing this theme or this common experience when I talk to people, sort of like passing go and Monopoly. Unlike some of the other chapters in this choose-your-own-adventure novels, the metaphor that we've been using, the decisions that each church and pastor made impacted whether they collected $200 every time they passed go, right? Uh, or whether they landed on income tax or, you know, you don't get to collect $200. It was sort of a cumulative experience, like you said earlier, John, that compounded positively or negatively. Or, or washed out. And so, Eric, I know it's hard to make definitive statements, but what overall conclusions can we draw about changes in giving and budget and attendance in terms of what helped churches, what hurt them? Definitely want to echo what Ebony was sharing, how one of the aspects is really the unity and where unity and community were present that the churches and leaders actually stood a better chance. We saw growth, but when there's more division or different factors that impact that we saw a, a decrease or kind of hurt them. Uh, and one thing that was actually surprising is that the pandemic restrictions, the severity of it did not really cause attendance and budgets to increase or decrease. So kind of when we looked at the restrictions by states to try and see if there's a correlation, we didn't find any. And it did look like the churches who were able to positively change, such as adapt or react quickly or unify behind leadership or putting aside their political differences, they're more likely to report a growth in attendance. And so a lot of times it's natural for us to kind of look at external factors saying this is what impacted the church or blame others. But in reality, a lot of these internal factors, things that the congregation or the pastor could influence is what helped the churches is that unity. Even some of the, when I was talking, having focus groups or talking to different pastors, hearing some of the stories, about how they kind of worked together or is more involved in the community or worked with other churches, you saw those positive stories come that help the church that you started looking outside, not because it's natural for us when things are going tough to just look inwardly, but that's not who we are as a church. That's not what God has for us, that we are to be the salt and light of the world. So seeing that even though it might be tough, but see, helping other congregations. And also another thing that helped is thinking outside the box. Some churches that were thinking had a grow more income either through a daycare center, even using church land as a storage for a local company or using their land as for a cell phone tower, help generate income is 
being flexible. We want to think outside the box and not just like, okay, I, people need to give more or just praying, but being more proactive. I remember some of the emails that you and I exchanged, Eric, where I would say, well, what if this caused changes in attendance? What if this caused this? And Eric would send me these email emails back and go, no, it doesn't look like it. One of the interesting ones was we thought that maybe the pandemic migration, people mm-hmm. moving because you know people were able to work from home and stuff, and there was some net migration, people moving closer to family and things like that. Maybe that contributed to attendance. And I remember your response was like, nope. <laughs> It sounded like sounded very plausible given the news, but that's why we from this data we want to run and just not just make uh, spurless claims, but we really want to back it up with data as well. So, John, we tried to make sure that we felt like everyone's story was being told in this chapter. But based on your research, how would you summarize the story? Uh, you know, if you had to tell the story of the miracle of plates and pews, understanding obviously that not everybody's going to be included in that story, how would you tell that tale? that in this story, there is opportunity to weep with those who are weeping and rejoice with those who are rejoicing because my story isn't necessarily somebody else's story. It's most clear, I think, in this particular chapter. I also think that the miracle of plates and pews may be that the miracle is yet to be determined. As we get time to understand how some of these stories unfold, we may discover that there was a miracle that we didn't see at the time. And I think that it's important to hold that possibility. And to remember that when we shrink our understanding of people to giving and sitting, we miss the ways that God may be working. Thank you guys for all your work in this chapter in this study. This was a an interesting question. This is one of the main things that we wanted to try and quantify as we came into this study. And I think we came out after all the discussions realizing that there just wasn't one answer to this question. Mm-hmm. The answer to this question is, it depends. And quantifying how and why it depends has been a challenge. But I appreciate you guys. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. COVID and the Church is a production of Church Salary, a ministry of Christianity Today. Executive producers are Aaron Hill, Terry Linhart, and Matt Stevens. Host, Aaron Hill. COVID and the Church is produced in conjunction with the Arbor Research Group and funded by the Lilly Endowment Incorporated through a grant from the Economic Challenges Facing Pastoral Leaders Initiative. Director for CT Media is Matt Stevens. Tyler Bradford Wright is our audio engineer, editor, and composer. Artwork provided by Ryan Johnson. And our art director is Sarah Gordon.